For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the origin of the University of Arizona battle cry, Bear Down. Explore the history of Western Ways Films, a husband and wife team who documented the real Arizona of the mid-20th century. And Feeding Our Future asks, how will climate change affect what we eat in the coming decades? Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Fans of the University of Arizona Wildcats have been shouting the battle cry, Bear Down, for close to 90 years. The phrase originated with one of the most well-known names in Tucson sports history, John Button Salmon. According to a historian in Cochise County, when Salmon was a student at the U of A, he spent his summers playing with a very different crowd. Zach Ziegler explains. Stand by the statue of John Button Salmon near Arizona Stadium, and you'll find it's not hard to learn the story of the young man immortalized there. In fact, the first two people I talked to, Jeff Irvin and Dave Beatty, pretty much nailed the basics. Irvin leads off. Just He's a U of A hero, as far as I know. Football team, I think he played with a football team. I'm pretty sure. I think he was like a student body president or something, and then... Uh, I guess he basically, that's where the bear down uh, chant came from, was from him. He's telling the fellow football players to bear down and win one, so that's a long time. his deathbed, I think, right? Yeah, laying there and told the team to bear down. So all the football guys, they usually go by and tap him on the head to get a little team spirit going, so. Salmon was the U of A's quarterback and student body president at the start of the 1926 school year. As the first football game approached, he was in a car accident while traveling back to Tucson from Phoenix. He died two weeks later, leaving his final message to the team with coach Pop McHale. Salmon was a native of southern Arizona, born and raised in Bisbee, and was also quite a baseball player. We knew about Button Salmon's career at the University of Arizona. That's well documented. But we didn't know about was what he did in the summertime. That's Mike Anderson, a baseball historian who lives in Bisbee. During the early 20th century, the towns of the desert southwest were dotted with baseball teams that existed outside the system that made up the major leagues and their farm teams. Leagues were mostly made up of community members, but were also a place where ringers could continue scratching out a living playing baseball. Anderson had heard talk that Salmon spent some time in the summer playing with a nearby team. So I went down to Douglas and researched in their newspaper, and lo and behold, Button Salmon spent the summer of 1925 from July through September playing baseball on a team in Douglas, the Douglas Blues of the Outlaw Copper League, with real outlaws. The Copper League was called an outlaw league because it was comprised of people who could be considered outlaws in baseball circles players who'd been banned from the majors. In the case of the Blues, it had some of the game's most well-known names on the squad. All had been kicked out for gambling. So the infield for the team at that time consisted of Hal Chase, the first baseman that Babe Ruth and, and Ty Cobb called the best in the business. Chase was blackballed from the league after repeatedly being suspected of fixing games for organized crime. 
Playing next to Chase was Chick Gandel, a player who'd been banned for being part of the Chicago White Sox team that threw the World Series. Shortstop was Buck Weaver, one of Chick Gandel's teammates on the 1919 Black Sox field. Anderson says while the band players were playing for a living, the Salmon family says John Button had a different purpose. For Button, he's saving his money. He's taking that back and paying for his tuition. Uh, this guy was, he was committed to education. His whole family um, was committed to education. Back in the day when most people didn't graduate from high school, both of his parents had attended college. And it turns out the phrase bear down was a callback to Salmon's own history. The bear down slogan that you see everywhere, that didn't start at the University of Arizona. Button brought that up with him from Bisbee High School. Anderson says local lore of Salmon's strong character and personality give an idea of how the young man may have handled himself on the baseball field. And I cannot help but believe that in the summer of 1925, John Button Salmon, this redheaded kid, 5'8", 145 pounds from Bisbee, Arizona, was yelling at Chick Gandil and Buck Weaver and Hell Chase to bear down. That's because, Anderson says, Salmon was a leader, whether it was on the gridiron or in the halls of the U of A, or on a baseball diamond playing with infamous names from America's pastime. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Zach Ziegler. Celluloid Pueblo is a new book from the University of Arizona Press. It tells the story of Charles and Lucille Herbert, a married couple whose shared passions revolved around documentary filmmaking and the American Southwest. Between the 1930s and the 1950s, the Herbert's production company, Western Ways Films, captured more than 100 unique stories in and around the Sonoran Desert in short subject form. These films helped to raise Arizona's tourism profile, and they presented the local Native, Mexican, and Anglo cultures to the world. I talked with Jennifer L. Jenkins, the author of Celluloid Pueblo, about how her journey to writing this book began. Well, I moved into the film school, and right across the street was the Arizona Historical Society, and I stepped over to see what kind of moving image records they had in the archive, and it turned out that they had this enormous collection of film and paper and still photographs made by Charles and Lucille Herbert under the aegis of Western Ways Films. And nobody had looked at this material since um, at least the 70s. And so here was a collection waiting for someone to discover and love it. And I am that person. It must have been, in a way, like coming across buried treasure. Uh, amazingly so. And my first taste of it was this videotape, a very old rickety videotape with three pieces of film on it, totaling about six minutes. But even in an old magnetic format and a pretty poor transfer. You could tell that this was a cinematographer with an amazing eye and the footage was beautiful even in bad video. <laughs> so I said I've got I've got to see more of this. I need to find out more about it and it went on from there. How were Charles and Lucille uh, unveiled to you as characters? How did they go from just being names on the sides of these film cans to being people? Well, there are 96 boxes of supporting information at the Historical Society, and it was all of their business files and biographical files. So I started pouring through those. I had some graduate student help, but they really liked telling their story. And there was a story about them in Arizona highways in the early 70s that gave some background. 
And then I just started digging and between the paper files at the Historical Society and the wonders of the internet, I was able to kind of piece together their life stories. You know, their story in some ways is quite unremarkable. They're very typical of people who moved west in the first three decades of the 20th century because they wanted to get away from whatever was going on back east. They were both from the south and the east and they just wanted some adventure and they wanted to uh, discover a new world and they were they played a big role in defining tucson in that middle three decades of the 20th century what were some of the talents that lucille herbert brought to the partnership well herb always said that she was his dictionary and she was certainly a bookkeeper he also said that she um, was a much nicer person than he was and could charm anybody she would sit and talk to people so that eased the way for getting permits and for getting people to talk to them and give them access to the particular kinds of stories they wanted to make. When the Herberts began Western Way Films, what would you say was their mission statement? They wanted to promote Arizona and the borderlands to the rest of the country and the world, period. Why do you think that was so important to them? Well, it was their adopted home. They had been through here in 1929 and decided to come back after a stint abroad working for Fox Movie Town. And I think Herb just felt like this was a place that had so much opportunity and so much appeal to the rest of the world that the rest of the world ought to know about it. So people who are familiar with the early days of cinema know that when people went to see a movie, it wasn't just for a feature film. You would get a package of newsreel-type material, cartoons, Mm -hmm. and short documentaries. And that seems to be the market that Western Ways Films was made to fit in with. Absolutely. They were called short features. They didn't follow directly on the newsreel. It would usually be the newsreel and then a cartoon and then the short feature and then maybe another cartoon or newsreel. So they were more sort of local interest or um, what film scholars call actuality films, promotional films, curiosity films, like The Giant Saguaro. That's a curiosity film. Oh, The Giant Saguaro. That to me was one of the most interesting stories because we follow the literal uprooting and moving of one of our great saguaro cactuses to a new location. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about why this was done and how it was done? Okay. This was done because Louise Grace, who was the heiress to the Grace shipping line, had a mansion in the foothills, and she wanted a saguaro in front of each of the 11 arches that gave her home its name. She had tried this once before, and she brought her gardener from the east with her, and he overwatered the saguaros, and they died. So this was a day when they went out to the open desert and harvested a saguaro and brought it back to the house. They enlisted the help of a man named Johnny Osted, who had just purchased a giant crane that had the weight and heft that made it able to carry a saguaro by its neck across the desert after it, it had been dug out by hand by laborers. And then the crane would would carry it, I think it was probably about three miles to 11 arches to plant it. Today we look at it and it it looks like an act of murder. But at the time, it was so interesting. You know, people all over the world were fascinated by these people scaling the saguaro and wrapping its limbs in mattresses and hay bales and chains. (laughs) 
There's a photograph in your book, and the, the cactus looks very well protected for its one-way journey. Maybe there wasn't enough attention paid to the biology of the cactus, though, because they ended up separating it from its main root. That is correct. And actually, when I've screened this around Arizona, there's a shot where the, the crane pulls the cactus up out of the hole and the taproot snaps and people gasp audibly. You show it any other part of the country and, you know, people don't really understand what that means. But here it really does seem like uh, an act of violation. Well, give us an idea of some of the other iconic images that the Herberts helped to preserve. Well, one of the things that they were very committed to was showing that the U.S.-Mexico border was safe and accessible and easy to cross. And so... So they were proving a point then that that might be more controversial today. Indeed. <laughs> of course, shopping in Nogales was a draw, but... They made two different films that suggested that following the mission trail further south to look at the the various missions built by Father Kino would be easy and accessible and lovely places to stay and gorgeous scenery, of course, and really um, offered access to a kind of romanticized view of old Mexico. In your opinion, did the Herbert show respect in documenting the Native culture and the Mexican culture in their films? Yes, indeed. I think what's really remarkable about these films coming as they do from the late 30s through the 40s and into the early 50s, how much respect there is for non-white populations, particularly for Native populations. And one of the ways that we can tell that as film viewers is when a subject is given the full frame of the film rather than being treated as background material or um, ancillary to something else that's going on. They made a film at Fort Huachuca about the Apache scouts who worked with the African-American soldiers, uh, the Buffalo soldiers at Fort Huachuca. And um, it's an amazing film for its time. It was right on the brink of World War II. And absolutely open and clear and um, respectful and indeed in some ways quite valedictory about these Apache scouts who who worked on the post. Just after the war they went out to cells and went to the first rodeo that was um, held after World War II and the same thing I mean it was then characterized as an all-Indian rodeo and all of the footage is shots of these native cowboys, including a shot, and I think it's in the book, of one returned veteran who's still wearing his fatigues, and he's sitting waiting to go into the rodeo ring. Lots of low-angle shots that show people as, you know, honored and, and powerful figures, and um, full-face shots, not mediated by other people. So in the end, about how long did you end... Um, rather. So by the end, about how long did you spend in the Herbert's world preparing this book? Honestly, from inception till now, almost a decade. What do you think that you as a person, as an artist, as a teacher gained from spending time with the Herberts in this way? Well, I have such affection for them. They feel like my own grandparents in some ways. I know them so well. I have an enormous respect for their sense of adventure and their uh, curiosity about the world. 
you know, these were two young people who didn't really have a whole lot of education. They both graduated from high school and set off to see the world and, and did and photographed it and made that into a livelihood, which persists unto today. You know, the results of their work are, as you say, iconic and extremely meaningful for our understanding of what Tucson was like during the Sun Belt boom. Author and U of A English professor Jennifer L. Jenkins talked about her book, Celluloid Pueblo. The University of Arizona Press and the UA Confluence Center will present a book launch event on Wednesday, October 19th at 6 p.m. at the Playground Bar and Lounge, 278 East Congress Street. You can find a link for information and a few stills from Celluloid Pueblo on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next, the fifth episode of the nine-part series, Feeding Our Future. It explores the innovative work being done to feed families, prepare for climate change, improve health, create pathways out of poverty, and promote our local food system. The series is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. Where will our food come from in the next decades? Right now, nearly everything we eat comes from outside Arizona. But scientists are predicting that higher temperatures and droughts will disrupt the global food system. Is there a key to a sustainable local food system waiting to be rediscovered in our backyard? Laura Markowitz has the story. Right before the monsoon rain starts, it's time for the mesquite trees to drop their long, cream-colored pods. Why don't you guys try some pods off this tree here? And it's time for Brad Lancaster to spread the love of mesquite to the people of Tucson. Okay, so I'm Brad Lancaster, co-founder of Desert Harvesters, a local nonprofit that's all about promoting the growing, harvesting, processing, enjoying, and celebrating of local wild native foods. 400 wild native foods in the Sonoran Desert. Today, the desert harvesters are at the Las Milpitas de Cottonwood Community Farm. It's on the west side of town. Lancaster shows a group of kids from City High how to harvest the pods. Some are heinous. The key thing is, you taste before you pick. You can get bitter, chalky, drying. You do not want to pick that one. You can get apple-flavored, nutty, boom. There's so, lunch. There's lunch, okay? <laughs> Okay, we got a favorable flavor sample of this one. I really like this one too. Oh, really like it. A tree growing in your yard or along your street. It's a free harvest. They thrive for free. Okay, so let's go check out another tree. We are surrounded by these incredibly abundant food forests, but nobody sees it. They just think, oh, that's just desert scrub. There's no use. Not only is all this food free, but it's also healthy. Choya cactus buds, prickly pear fruit, wild spinach, chia seeds, and mesquite flour help regulate blood sugar. And there's an economic opportunity here. Restaurants want to put local native foods on their menus. But we don't have the harvested supply to meet the growing demand. Mesquite flour sells for $14 a pound and up. An enterprising harvester can walk through any park in Tucson and collect bucketfuls of pods. Desert Harvesters teaches workshops to low-income people through the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. To get more people knowledgeable, and this becomes an income source for them. 
On the other end of Las Milpitas, desert harvester volunteers are running the grain mill. It's loud. If you guys put out your hand, I'll give you a little bit of flour. Now you can taste it. Mmm, that's a good treat. The mill is mounted on a trailer, so volunteers can bring it around to neighborhoods. They're trying to make it easy for people to turn their pods into flour and take advantage of this free food. But most people don't know what to cook with mesquite. Even Brad Lancaster didn't have much of a mesquite flour repertoire. We'd just been making pancakes. So they asked people for recipes and put together a mesquite cookbook. You can make cakes, breads, pie crust, pizza, ice cream, moles, baklava, tamales, Indian naan bread with prickly pear chutney. When you get a little older, you can make beer. What gets Lancaster most excited about mesquite is not just that it's free food growing on a tree, but that it's free food growing on a tree that doesn't need irrigation. No water bill. They already are doing great just on the rainfall. That's what they're adapted for. Lancaster literally wrote the book on rainwater harvesting. It's called Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. Rainwater harvesting is simply techniques to collect, store, and use rainwater. At his house in the Dunbar Spring neighborhood, the land between people's property lines and the street was just bare dirt. So Lancaster dug basins. He planted natives like choyas and mesquites in those basins. Then he made cuts in the curb. So when it rains, the stormwater rushes down the street and goes right into the basins and fills them up. It had gone from this completely denuded dirt walkway to this beautiful canopy that was cool and you could have uh, native fruits being produced, whether it's choya buds or the mesquite pods. Leslie Ethan is sustainability manager for the city of Tucson. When I hear about sustainability, something that frustrates me about is what are we trying to sustain? Because the system we currently have continually consumes more water than it generates. It consumes more fertility than it generates. I like the idea of a regenerative system. So how do we grow food in a way that enhances our health, the health of our soil, the health of our watershed, and the health of our economy? Brad Lancaster's house opened my eyes to the real potential that water harvesting, just passive water harvesting, could have in our community. What will happen to native plants when the region heats up? The University of Arizona's Climate Assessment for the Southwest, CLEMIS, predicts a 10% drop in annual precipitation in the next decade, and a later start to the monsoon rains. Desert plants and trees will probably survive. They'll be under a lot more stress, which makes them more susceptible to things like pests. More bad news. The temperature is predicted to be a lot hotter, with more days that break 110 degrees. When I think about Tucson's food system, the first and foremost alarm bell is water. In a non-desert environment, having as much of your food produced locally is key. When you live in the kind of environment we do, and when climate change is posing such a risk to our water supply, it's not so cut and dry. Is local food production the best investment of our water? We don't necessarily have to grow 
Midwest corn? Are there more desert adapted varieties? Does it make sense to bring it in from elsewhere? I've talked to a climate scientist who frankly advocates for importing our food because we're importing that water too. A Saudi company had that same idea. In January, Al Marai bought up 14,000 acres of farmland between Gila Bend and Blythe, California. They're growing alfalfa and shipping it back to Saudi Arabia to feed dairy cows. Alfalfa needs a lot of water. They are saying that they are protecting their capacity for future self-sufficiency by not pumping their groundwater and getting their alfalfa from someplace else. But they're pumping Arizona's groundwater. Gary Nabhan is director of the Center for Regional Food Studies at the University of Arizona. Groundwater pumping is as much extraction as mining copper or coal. So it's absolutely legal. They're doing nothing wrong legally. But is it morally okay to deprive future generations of Arizonans of the water from rainfall that falls in this state to export crops for another country? And what happens if the people of Mexico and California start to ask the same question about their water being exported to Arizona in the form of tomatoes? Nabhan says we need to be prepared for these conversations and we need to strengthen our local food system. I don't expect everyone to eat mesquite pods and choya buds, but I, I do wish that everyone could see that the desert itself is not the limiting factor to us gaining local food security and health for our children. Right now, 98% of our food comes from outside the region. That's according to Leslie Ethan. Tucson Water is preparing for the future by banking around six months of water supply from the Central Arizona Project each year. But when it comes to food, we don't even have a one-week supply. There's something like a three or four day supply of food in the community at one time. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about. And it isn't just about putting food on someone's table now. It's being able to plan to withstand those larger scale disruptions. She says there's no plan from the city or county for long term food security. Not yet. But you've got a lot of really passionate and smart planners that have this on their radar screen and are thinking about it every day and looking for ways to just slowly move the needle. She says climate change probably won't hit Arizona as a single catastrophic event like a Hurricane Katrina. It'll be more like death by a thousand cuts, an endless summer of 116-degree days and no rain on the horizon. But Ethan believes we still have time to get ready. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Production of Feeding Our Future is made possible with support from the Zuckerman Family Foundation. To learn more, visit azpm.org and tune in next week for Episode 6 of Feeding Our Future, Turning Garbage into Gardens. I wish I could go up to every single person and say, hey, finish your food. Hear how the U of A's compost cats, the city of Tucson, local business, and Nandi the elephant are partnering to save the environment. Next week on Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. 
The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>